City Limits. Brought to us by the People's Committee for Melbourne every Wednesday at 9am. City Limits is Melbourne's only hour devoted to our urban environment. To transport and planning and housing issues. To privatisations and our utility services. To building and or maintaining a sense of community. 855 on the AM band, if we can hear it through the noise and find it through the smog. City City Limits. Limits. And good morning. You're listening to City Limits. Morning, Kev. You decided to show up, did you? I did, Corey. I think you were being a bit rude this morning. But um, (laughs) anyway, uh, I did decide to show up, yes. And um, here we are. I was here at half minute to nine. I was in the studio by one after on the clock. That's all right. I, I like the way you started the show, though. You said to us, Mike's on, and then you spoke, and then well, your mic wasn't on. <laughs> but that's besides That's the point. true. That's true. Well, uh, and Mark Allen's in the you're studio. You're ruining the magic of radio. <laughs> Corey, because that was Corey talking there. And Mark Allen's in the studio again because Mark's filling in for two weeks for, um, for Emma, who's um, desperately studying away. So, Mark, she welcome is. back. It's good to be here. Thank you. And this morning, Emma, we're going we're gonna to be talking, as we promised a couple of weeks ago, till we got the wrong phone number, um, to Paddy Moriarty all these days. Professor Moriarty, which he loves to now, of course, because of other connections, um, out at Monash about all sorts of things. But also, we are going to talk to him about a um, an, old, an old interview you played last Sunday on um, Earth Matters. So, apologies to those who've heard that. You're going to hear it twice. But mm. tell us about that. Well, that's a, it's an interview from 3CR's archives. Um, it's with Jack Mundy of the New South Wales Builders Labourers Federation. And it's about his union, social justice and environmental work. And you interviewed him with Meredith Butler and Dave Kerrin in 1999. 1999. Good God. <laughs> I remember doing it. It was, in the, it was in Studio 2, actually. We did mm. that. Yeah, but it was on a Friday afternoon, I think. Yeah. Um, anyway, that's beside the point. People, it's, it's just 20 years, it's still here, or whatever it is, nearly 20 years. Um, okay, so and what we're going to do is play that, because Jack talks about a lot of the issues that affected him um, the builders, labourers themselves, but also their role in the community and something we wish would happen today, far more union cooperation with, mm. with community, mm. with communities. And also um, he talks about about transport, cars, etc., and the whole whole perspective of what we talk, we talk about on Energy Day here and with Paddy Moriarty. So I thought we'd play that and then have Paddy and Mark, who also has an interest in these sort of issues, and I guess you and I as well, uh, discuss what he talked about and just took, put it into context of whether we've learnt much in those that time, I suppose, and most part from anything else. So we'll have a, a, a pretty broad discussion around those issues. And Paddy Moriarty also uh, wants to talk to us about a couple of other things he's been researching. One is changing, tra- train, changing not transport patterns, but tra- changing movement patterns in Melbourne in terms of how people move around. Mm. Um, and also he's got some stuff on electric cars, which are becoming, um, you know, there's, there's a new Tesla coming out, which is a much more much more cheap model, and therefore um, lots of people are queuing up to buy it, so all that sort of stuff. So that's the, the today's program. It is our energy day. It's our second Wednesday of the month, so we'll do that. Yeah. Okay, there we are. Nice okay, stuff. so this is so, Jack Mundy. Are we going to do that now? We'll do it. I'll cut, just say two or three things I'm oh, going to okay, talk sorry. about, and then we'll go, no, I'm going to cut back, and this is great for listeners as well, I'm going to cut back dramatically on my usual starting crap, so that's great for listeners. I'm going to pour some tea while we're doing that as well. But I, I, look, I, while I'm pouring the tea, I will mention one thing I wanted to talk about, because this is a real issue of, um, if you don't mind my saying so, workplace safety, which uh, a lot of unions get 
<coughs> excoriated for because they care about it on pouring tea at the same time. Oh, you're not having one, are you, Mark? You've got your own. I did. I made you one rejected first. Oh, damn I'm it. sorry. Only one today. Now, this is the... They're complaining about the amount of weight police have to carry on their uniform. And when you look at it, they've got... This is what they've got to carry. It's awful. I mean, this has to be something about it. A ballistic vest, a radio pouch so you can ring for help when you're being attacked, I guess. A spare magazine, that's for shooting people. It's not a, you know... It's not who's not a, who? Not a newspaper, no, no, no. Okay. Pistol, pistol in there, and the left hand, that's where the magazine goes into. Capsicum spray, taser, handcuffs and gloves and baton. Now, you know, they've got to carry all that around with them. Um, mm. really, they, to I, do just what police normally do, you know, their normal duties like... Well, framing, kicking, bashing, that sort of thing. Yeah, you can just do that with your hands. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah. Anyway. I mean, if you're really good, you could, you know, kill a person with your hands. Yeah, so they're complaining about how much they've got to carry. Maybe so why are they, they carrying so lighter much? Lighter guns, lighter batons. No, you can't have a lighter baton because you're going to be able to bash people with it. Yeah, but yeah. But then the next page, I realised some police are trying to get around it because, believe it or not, the very next next news page, the right-hand page, and this is all in yesterday's Herald Sun, Members of Victoria Police's elite special operations group were given growth hormones by an associate of figures in the Essendon doping scandal. So Whoa. some coppers have realised they need to build up their weight to carry all this stuff around. Jeez. Yeah, they Crikey. are. Yeah, so. Is it a myth or is it true that those growth hormones can trigger aggression? Um, <laughs> cops don't need it, so imagine, imagine what they would be like afterwards, that's right. <laughs> the mentality that joins the police force or the trained killer force uh, doesn't need too much to get aggressive, do they? Yeah, that's true, It's true. Have a sip of tea. Now, one other one before we go, and I'll, I'll, I might do, we might do more on this next week with a bit more time, but a headline, and this came out of America from Bloomberg this week, Richest 1% outlives U.S. poorest by 10 years. Wowzers. Wow. And the, and the figures show the richest Americans can expect to live at least a decade longer than the poorest, and that gap, as with income inequality, is growing ever wider. Um, and um, they say the change between 01 and 14 shows that the wealthy are benefiting more from gains in longevity than the destitute, etc., etc. But it's just the, the usual story. And it says the differences suggest that the increasing inequality in health outcomes in the U.S., as a whole, is not immutable. The shortest life expectancy in the poorest quartile was in Oklahoma and Rust Belt cities such as Gary, Indiana, which was a, a song in another music man, Gary, Indiana. The longest was in cities like New York and San Francisco with highly educated populations, high incomes and high levels of government expenditures. So there you are. Hmm. So that'll do. Look, though, we won't rave on any longer, but I, that, that seems to me to be a particularly interesting and, and important story. And we know that. I mean, we see it here with our Indigenous population, mm. for instance. And oh, yeah, definitely. totally. Um, and I guess over there, too, many of those poorest would be the blacks, of course, and the Hispanics and all the others who mm. are at the bottom of the scale. And Native Americans. Yeah. Yeah, that's yeah. right. That's right. But that's the health system, of course, that we are trying to achieve here in Australia. Well, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that's good, isn't it? <laughs> Great. Promising, promising. <laughs> Something to look forward to. <laughs> let's, let's play Jack Mundy. Jack, what events led you to become involved in unionism and politics in Sydney in the 60s? Oh, in the 50s, actually. Uh, that's 50s. how old I am. Um, I came down from far north Queensland to play rugby league, which is a non-Australian rules football code. And, and uh, in the early 50s for Parramatta, I became in, involved in unionism because... Uh, I uh, went into the building industry. It was uh, a very rough industry. 
the union leadership was uh, worked in tandem with the um, master builders and um, I became involved that way. Right, so what were conditions like for a BL when you first came to Sydney? Pretty horrendous. I mean, I started working in the building industry in the late 50s, about 57, and um, in, and we formed a group called the Rank and File Committee, which had the aim of um, winning control for the rank and file against a very corrupt union. And um, in one year, I had 17 jobs. I got no sooner would you commence on a job than you they'd pick your head out and they'd sack you. And um, so it was very traumatic years. And, and a, a strange aspect to the building industry because when I commenced in the industry, the highest building in Sydney was 150 feet. In fact, there was a limit of 150 feet. So a 13-storey building was the biggest building in Sydney. And then they lifted the height limit and the sky became the limit. And uh, Ironically, it was that that brought more and more workers together in the city and uh, the rank and file gathered strength. We knocked over the very corrupt leadership and when we won power, we set about a number of things that were different to most other unions. We set about the idea that all union officials should get paid the same as the workers on the job. We fought for the right of women to work in what was then an all-male enclave. We had migrants put on the um, books as uh, officials and at all delegates conferences and mass meetings, we had six or eight of the main uh, nationalities address their members. And so we sort of broadened out the whole approach. And we then in the 60s fought to quote, civilize the industry because as the buildings went up, in one year there were 14 dogmen killed in the city because of the narrow streets and wind channels, wind tunnels, and so we fought for a more dignity for building workers and to, quote, civilise the industry. And I think that won the confidence of the workers. The workers could see that we weren't just in it for ourselves. And another very controversial decision we made was... Uh, that all union officials should have a limited tenure of office, two terms, uh, and after two terms, they should relinquish office uh, from full-time work for one term at least before being eligible for re-election. In hindsight, I think this was a bit too advanced because it alienated not only right-wing union officials, but left-wing union officials. And whereas the rank and file thought it was a great idea, in the sense it's proved that the union leadership was concerned about the workers and not using union officialdom as a stepping stone to a job in parliament or if you like to defect a job for the employers or being appointed to the industrial courts etc. So I think it was those sort of things that made the builders labourers a different sort of union. The New South Wales BLF were at the forefront of social change during this time and there were there were so many actions that you you took part in and the rank and file workers took part in with community residents um, but before getting into that I was just wondering 
when did you start this sabotage of um, industrial sites? I was really interested to see how that came about with knocking the walls down and things like that. I don't know whether the word sabotage is, is appropriate. What we put forward was that we had made a democratic decision to go on strike. It was about civilising industry and lifting up the workers' wages. And the employers, because of the scattered nature of the building industry, where you've got hundreds and hundreds of jobs, uh, in the main, all the city jobs and the metropolitan areas of Wollongong and Newcastle were unionised. But if you get out right out in the wide suburbs, well, they weren't all. And so what the employers tended to do was to try and use non-union labour to break down the conditions. And we said we were on strike, and therefore we'd made a democratic decision to go on strike, and they were deliberately trying to usurp that by using scab labour. And what we said, we'd occupy the site, and if any damage occurred to the property of the employer, it rested with the owners of the building that was using scab labour. So we were defending the democratic right. The employers, of course, and the Askin government, a very right-wing Tory government in New South Wales, very pro-development, used it as a saying, well, here's anarchy gone mad, the union's running over things here. But we were saying we're endorsing and supporting the rank-and-file decision that this industry is closed. And some damage occurred to sites. And, of course, then the tabloid newspaper would take it up and with headline news about uh, Sydney being tram trampled underfoot by the builders' labourers, that sort of terrible exaggeration. And uh, I think it played a part in, in alienating a lot of people against us at that stage. That's why it's very interesting later on. I mean, uh, we were vilified for the action then. But later on, when we, after the Green Band period, well, we were well and truly vindicated because that civilising the union and giving the workers dignity allowed us then to embark on wider issues of social and ecological concern. So had we not cleansed the union and civilised the industry, we would never have been able to get the workers to take a more advanced action on ecology and on the environment. Just on that, I was wondering, was there a conflict of interest in workers' jobs and holding up all that development in Sydney at that time? I think, the, well, of course, at that stage, the unemployment position was not as bad as it is today. But there's always a conflict on the question of jobs and the environment. And in the main, the forces of reaction have been able to put forward a phony scenario saying you've got to choose, quote, jobs or the environment. Whereas, of course, we said we want both. We want jobs and the environment. We want socially useful jobs. Why should we build more and more high-rise buildings when there was something like 10 million square feet of unleaded office space? And yet you had 55,000 people waiting on the housing emissions list for housing emission homes. So we argued aggressively again that money should be diverted from useless high-rise office buildings, many of it standing empty for years, and moved over into areas of socially useful production 
of buildings that could house people. And a couple of examples, for example, in Woolloomooloo, which is looked upon as the oldest suburb in Australia, just down from the central business district in Sydney, they were going to extend the high-rise right down there and build millions of dollars of high-rise development. And we put a ban on that, and we argued that it should be for people to live in, that working-class people should not be forced 30, 40 miles out of Sydney. And Woolloomooloo is now is a classic example of what we did, because there, right in the heart of Sydney, you've got low-income people being able to have affordable, to use that word, housing, whereas uh, the, old, the old working class areas like Paddington and Glebe and Balmain have been well and truly gentrified. And where they were the working class areas, it's now certainly middle upper class have moved into those areas. So I think Woolloomooloo was an example of the argument that we were concerned to link social issues what we're doing with our own labour. Whereas before, there was a tendency to say, well, all the workers should be concerned about was the hip pocket, was wages, wages and conditions. And we argued that in a modern society, uh, wider issues, quality of life issues, uh, should become a part of the union's concern. What was the view of the union on slum clearance um, of working class homes to build commission flats for public housing? Well, it, it's uh, for those that know Sydney, it's almost uh, unbelievable now to think that in the 50s and 60s, early 60s, Paddington, which is built on the hills, a hot, undulating area, which is now a working class area, was going to be all flattened and, uh, and high-rise development put in. The same thing was going to happen with the rocks. So I think that the movement of the time brought together uh, people who felt that they had some rights, like uh, I think that the union becoming involved in social issues meant that people who were fighting against leaving the rocks or leaving Woolloomooloo had an ally. And so you had a strange coming together of working class um, homeowners or renters together with a union who, who were prepared to fight for them. And at the same time, you had environmental issues like uh, Kelly's Bush, which is in really a, a really flash suburb of, of Sydney, Hunters Hill, where women went down in front of a bulldozer to save the last remnant of rainforest on the Parramatta River. And as a very last resort, they came to us on the basis they heard that the builders' labourers were saying, we should be concerned about things wider than economics. And it's now history. We came together and the middle upper class women together with the rough and builders labourers saved Kelly's Bush. And I think this had a tremendous appeal to people across the whole spectrum because it was a genuine coming together of working class and middle class in action about the environment. And also before that time, there was a tendency to look upon the environment as being nature conservation, being forests, rivers, lakes, barrier reef, etc. And what was shot home in the Greenbound movement was that we are Australia, one of the most urbanised countries on earth. If you take Geelong and Melbourne, Sydney, Wollongong and Newcastle, 
the Gull Coast and Brisbane, you've got 70% of Australians living in three great urban areas. So the built environment became a very important aspect. And uh, as the um, prominent biologist Paul Ehrlich said when he came, he couldn't believe that you could have an alliance of unions and environmentalists because it was so alien to things that he had experienced in the United States where, where big businesses set one against the other and said you're natural allies and natural enemies. Here you had them together and he explained it as he said it was the birth of urban environmentalism as against nature conservation. So I think they're the sort of trailblazing things that the, the Green Band movement did. And the, and the reason it did, I think we've traced it through, that you had a union that were just all working, all very, most of, most of us hadn't even had a formal education. And yet, because of the circumstance of a corrupt union before us, we were able to reach out and, and, and bridge that link that made the Green Band movement possible. It was the support we had. Like, on the one hand, we had many uh, people from the uh, employer, naturally, the, the employers were against us. Askin government was very hostile. Uh, we also had um, some union of the right-wing union officials. They were saying things like, quote, the un builders' labourers are going too far. Shouldn't be saving heritage buildings. You know, like They were saying all these things. Well, we responded by saying that anything that impinges upon the workers' rights, they've got the right to do it about. It's not only wages and conditions. And I think they were the things that, that, that attracted a lot of people, some of whom, for example, were Liberal voters. On the one hand, we had right-wing union officials uh, criticising us for doing these things. On the other hand, we had small L Liberal people in the Democrats, or the, the, in those days there wasn't a Democrat party, there was a, a Gordon Barton's Australia Party, those people coming on side and saying, look, normally we're against unions, but we find that you know, saving fig trees in the botanical gardens, saving heritage buildings, saving workers' homes, well, we find ourselves on side with the union. So that was the sort of dichotomy we had that split the normal left-right division. But just finally, just quickly, I wanted to ask, um, there was other social movements involved and I believe that there was a pink ban at some stage. Can you tell us about that? The pink band that was. Well, the, the, I remember the blue band on. The Macquarie on, University pink band. <laughs> oh, of course. Well, there was also a blue band down on Lake Pedham. <laughs> well, yeah. Well, the other thing that I've omitted to say is that because of the times, because of the Vietnam War, apartheid, supports for our own, own blacks. For example, we were the first union to bring down Dexter Daniels and uh, Captain Major and took them around the building sites. We, the tent embassy was set up in Canberra with our union, a couple of other union support. So we were involved in all those sort of things as well. And we also, as you made the point, women's social liberation, the very fact we had women working as leaders and the builders' labourers. But <clears throat> the other one happened in, in, uh, in the Macquarie University was that Je Jeremy Fisher was kicked out of the Rod Robert Menzies College solely because he was a homosexual. And the builders' labourers, who were then building a big part of the extension, stopped work and demanded that he be reinstated. And they won the case. 
At the same time, women's social liberation, Anne Curthoys and Elizabeth Jacker, were fighting for a women's social liberation course at Sydney University. Again, there was more development there. Again, the workers stopped work on that job and forced the university authorities to introduce the course. And that course was introduced. The first course on women's social liberation was at Sydney University with Elizabeth Jacker and, and Jean Curthoys. So, yeah, we, we, well, it was probably in this interview, which is too short, to traverse the whole lot. But I mean, I think the important thing, of course, it was an exciting time. It was a time of change. And I'm not trying to make out that the Builders' Labourage Union was miles ahead of any other union. What I'm saying is that they responded to the times. They responded to the calls of other people. It, I want to say it wasn't the intellect of the union leaders that made the change. The main thing you can say, they responded to people who came to us. And then through linking up together, we all were educated together. So that was from the 3CR archives. We're celebrating 3CR's 40th year this year. And that was uh, Jack Mundy of the New South Wales Builders Labourers Federation. And obviously you considered my questions incredibly important because not one made it (laughs) beyond the cutting room floor. (laughs) I don't know what to say. (laughs) Oh, you don't have to say it. That's Uh. obvious. (laughs) But uh, seriously, um, we'll get to Paddy Moriarty and we'll talk to Mark and uh, Corey and I will talk about this um, for the rest of the program. But... Um, I think all we can say is, but that that sort of thing could happen today. Wouldn't it be wonderful? Mm. Have a union with that sort of attitude. Oh, wouldn't it be great? A, yeah. It would be wonderful. Yeah, all right. Let's take a break <laughs> and we'll come back and get Patty on the line and have a talk about what uh, what Jack was talking about. Okay. This is Groovy Lips and the Yang with M No Good. <laughs> And that was Groovy Lips and the Yang with M No Good. I would recommend looking up that song and listening to the whole thing. <laughs> okay, and uh, on the line we've got uh, Paddy Moriarty out at Monash, uh, Professor Moriarty these days, Professor, um, and uh, Mark Allen in the studio as well. We just listened to that uh, interview from 1999, I believe, from about with Jack Mundy. Paddy, um, interview with Jack Mundy we just had... Um, we were saying, wouldn't it be wonderful if unions and communities could do that sort of thing today, get together and uh, and take some of those environmental issues up? Yeah, I remember when I when I came back from Africa, I was first involved in stuff. Yeah, the unions were very active then in the, in environmental issues. Yes, and uh, in the um, late seventies, early eighties. Yeah, yeah. And, and what happened? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I guess. I was working with the, well, especially the Australian Railways Union and, um, well, I mean, public transport unions are sort of involuntary environmentalists, right, in a sense. Mm. And uh, so, um, you know, when we when we wrote Hold the Line and managed to save those um, five rail lines from closure in 1981 and so on. So, uh, yeah, those were great days. Mm. Yeah. We Mark, really need more more people like Jack Mundy today. I mean... It's it's so sad because, you know, we're in a time now where we, we have severe environmental issues, you know, coming to the fore and we need people like him and we're not seeing it so much. It's quite depressing, really. Yeah, but then again, I remember going to, I think it was when um, John Kane first came to power after all, in, in Victoria after a long period of, of, uh, of liberals and it was um, any anti-uranium rally I think or uh, anti-nuclear rally anyhow and um, you know it should have been I mean there was a very big rally but 
I just saying, where are the where are the union people here? Like, I didn't see many working people. They're always young people and students and this sort of thing. But um, the you know the uh, the union unionised workforce just didn't appear to be at the rally, which was interesting. Even this was in the uh, late seventies, early eighties. Yeah, that, that, Paddy, on some of the stuff that, that in an area that wasn't actually in that interview, but something Jack was passionate about, there's a, there was a headline in the paper this week, Millions for Monash, which you'd be excited about, thinking, well, your university's going to get lots of money and you might get lots of it. Uh, but what it actually is is the Monash uh, freeway, and there's millions of dollars for more. <laughs> Another freeway. Yes, it's, it's, it's more road space and more cars, etc. Now, one of Jack Mundy's claims back in those days, and I don't the figures would be, would at least be no less, uh, was that 33%, I think he said, of Sydney's urban land space was devoted totally to the motor car by either roads, parking spots, garages and all that sort of thing. Um, nothing it, much would have changed, would it? It depends, yeah. It depends where you, where you define the, the city limits. I mean, the um, Melbourne Statistical Division, I think, is well, it seems to change every year, but it's over 10,000 square kilometres, right? So it obviously wouldn't be a third of that. It, it It'd be a reasonably high percentage of the of the built up area, which is one and a half, one thousand six hundred square kilometres, right? So as I say, it depends where where you put the boundaries. If you put it way out past uh, Rockbank and so on, it's uh, <laughs> it <laughs> it'd be less. Yeah, I've um, I've heard that per capita car use has actually declined in recent years. So the added congestion obviously is to do with population growth that's being focused on the major cities and and not so much in the regions, uh, would that be a, an issue? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, um, the, uh, yeah in, in Melbourne, um, absolute car use hasn't grown much considering our en- enormous increases in population in a number of Western countries and cities, including Australia, um, uh, the UK, and um, I think still in the US. Uh, per capita, uh, car travel has, has fallen. Yeah. Um, and this has been... In some countries, Australia and uh, the UK, there's also been a decline in licence holding by young people, especially males, which is very interesting. Mm. Yeah, right. It is interesting. Yeah, I know a lot of my friends um, don't don't drive. So. Well, I think I mean the, the car's accepted as a sort of a uh, you know as a, as sort of a necessary object. But when I was young, that was a while ago. Um, oh. I hadn't invented the wheel in, but yeah, this, when re- they did, this reflects an amazing memory, Pat. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. But, but you remember that, Kevin? You you remember the the car show was a really big deal, you know, the mm. annual car show. Now nobody gives a shit, you know. It's just mm. things have changed. I mean, they they accept them, but they it's a necessary evil. I think the way it's viewed by by most people these days, they just don't get excited. Plus the fact that every car looks the same and they all rebrand each other. The only thing. Different will be the, the uh, windscreen wash bottle or something, you know. Despite that, though, the, the, that headline, Millions for Monash, reflected the fact that the federal government has promised all this money for transport upgrades in Victoria, and the Herald Sun, of course, is making out that it's Malcolm Fraser, the hero, and David and, and Andrews, the president, the premier here, who's been made look like a fool out of all this. But I, I looked at right. the... I looked at... I, well, that's typical, isn't it? But I looked at the various proposals, and in fact... Road proposals in this, or road money going to roads, is eleven hundred and ninety-eight million, and to any public transport, it's two hundred and thirty million. So it's still five times roads, despite the fact that public transport's the one that's desperately calling out for funding. Mm. Exactly. Yeah, it's 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 funny, like the future. Um, 
you remember the old uh, what was called Asphalt's magic circle that is predict and 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 provide as they called it in in England right um, the the roads the roads people there would predict increased travel and then work to fill up the roads and so on in other words um, our image, our image of the future determines what we do in the present. It's not the other way around, you know. Mm. Uh, in, in this case, and um, for instance, with these uh, with these level crossing removals, right? It's never been discussed. Uh, traffic um, management as a solution, right? It, it wasn't even on the on the agenda. It's whether you want them underground or overground. Mm. But there was never any discussion of the fact. Well, maybe we could solve this by by just thinking about why we travel, you know, and so on, and. Uh, you know, given that uh, vehicular travel has written, risen by a factor of about three to four com- compared with 1947, uh, this is per capita in Melbourne and even more in the smaller cities like um, uh, Perth and Adelaide. Uh, what's all this travel for? Mm, exactly. Mm. Have you got an answer to that? Me? Yeah. Yeah. Um, my answer is that the conv- is it is that the car travel radically enhanced the convenience of travel. It's all a con. In other words. Once, I mean, any any transport is actually public transport insofar as it's very... Your transport patterns are very de- dependent upon what other people do. Compared with, say, if you want to use less water at home, you can, and it doesn't matter, but it's very hard to use less transport when everyone else is using a lot of transport because uh, they'll arrange things, you know, meetings or workplaces or anything else that, that can't be accessed at using other means by at certain times or by you, know, you can't use other modes and so on, right? So, in other words, um, we all get forced into increased travel. As I say, it's all a con. It's a corporate solution to the problem of access. Mm. 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 And, of course, one of the things that Jack Mundy talked about again was preserving inner urban um, pub housing for working people. Now, this is something we're seeing disappearing rapidly in Melbourne, and he made the point that, that you don't want working people forced to 30 or 40k out of the city, but um, in terms of urban planning, that's very much what's happening at the moment, isn't it? Oh, yeah. If you go back to the first post-war census in 1947, um, the, 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 the poorest suburbs were in the inner area, right? But of course, the poorest suburbs had the uh, had the best public transport system, the best hospitals, mm. um, all the theatres. I don't know if they use that much, or you know, pubs, uh, uh, parks, and so on. And I think eventually, <laughs> planners decided, hey, what's going on here? <laughs> so, first of all, um, southern Euro- European migrants moved in the inner area, Carlton, and so on. And then there was this, um, uh, you know, the the inner area was then filled by the inner area is now contains. Um, the highest income people in Melbourne. Uh, high income households traditionally lived were in um, Camwell, uh, Camwell, Brighton, Kew, Hawthorne, but they've now been joined by the inner area to form a sort of a, a uh, an ellipse uh, centred on the city and heading eastward. Right, that's the. And if you if you uh, plot uh, per capita incomes from the city centre outwards to um, Cranbourne, you find it just falls <laughs> in an exponential manner as you head out. Right. Mm. Yeah. Well, in fact, the, the four fastest-growing population areas in Australia, not just Victoria, in Australia, the top four are Cranbourne, East, South Morang, Epping and Point Cook, all areas without... Well, South Morang's got a station now at last, but oh, yeah. uh, they have, you know, they're areas with not the best public transport in the world. Well, uh, yeah, the, 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 I'm sorry. Yeah, I was... Even if you have... See, the trouble is if you have a radial... Uh, uh, rail system and i'm not suggesting you should have a you know it should have been designed some other way but it's inevitably the case 
But as you get further out, I mean, South Morang has a railway station, but but the the next line could be 20 kilometres away at that point, right? And if you're in, in between, you, you you have a problem. Whereas if you're living in, say, um, Crifton Hill, you know, you've got a choice of, or, or a bit further north, you've got a choice of railway lines or trams or whatever else, right? You, you, you don't get this number of choices in the outer areas. And you sort of can't, at least for fixed rail, and even bus services are going to be... Uh, fairly thin on the ground uh, once you cross Warrigal Road, as uh, Paul Moose used to point out. Mm. So the, the, the irony is is that um, they say that by building high density around railway stations in the inner suburbs and mi- middle suburbs that it will prevent suburban sprawl, but from what I've seen it's actually increasing suburban sprawl because it's pricing people out of the area. Well, the, the main thing that's causing Melbourne to grow larger is the fact that we're is, 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 is that the population is growing at far too great a rate, right? I mean, yeah. Melbourne's four and a half million now. We have to stop that. Yeah. Once you get to a certain city size, you get uh, there are economies of scale as you get larger initially, right? Yeah. Um, but as you get past a certain size, the diseconomies of scale come in. For instance, um, you know, all these, so, well, if you want to continue the car system, all these uh, level crossing removals cost a lot, these new freeways, even the, the new rail, proposed rail to, um, you know, South Yarra and so on. And, of course, when you think of it, uh, maybe developers in the outer area do have to put in local roads, but, of course, <laughs> people only use that for the first 100 uh, metres of their of their daily travel. The rest of it, they're on the main roads. And, you know, and we've got other costs, for instance, the um, water desal plant and so on. Yes, Melbourne's, so, Melbourne's hardly the biggest um, city in the world. Surely that they can learn from um, other big cities about how to deal with uh, increasing population. Yeah, don't. <laughs> <laughs> That's what we learned. Now, this is a, a worldwide trend. If you take you know countries like America, you find that big cities tend to have big problems. It's it's complex. In some areas, um, they may you know there still may be economies of scale, but overall, it seems like it just costs more. London uh, and New York have better transit, um, you know, really good public transport. Yeah, um, uh, um, that's true. But of course, even a small city could have good, a very good transit system if people used it. For instance, in Melbourne, I mean, our our, our transit system is only used by uh, for for ten percent of vehicular travel, right? So if it was used for, uh, you can see that if if a transit system was used for 100% of people travel, of vehicular travel, then even a small city could have it. So it depends upon what percentage. And when you talk about New York, of course, I mean, it's in three or four states in America, the New York metropolitan area, including Connecticut and parts of even Pennsylvania and um, and a lot of northern New Jersey. Um, It depends where you define the boundaries of New York, right? Whether it has a good public transport system or not. I suppose also the issue is that our population in Melbourne is growing too fast for the in- infrastructure to keep up, and it's having the money for the infrastructure as well. Yeah, I mean, it's driving us broke. Yeah, yeah and, and so therefore the default position is to build estates on the fringe because that's how you deal with a rapidly growing population when you don't have the money for high-speed rail and new rail connections and that kind of thing. Well, Do you mean yeah. we don't have the money, or is it being prioritised wrong? Both, I guess. But, you know, high-speed rail isn't, isn't a solution either because the trouble is that you've got to... I mean, most people are just going to be sitting at station watching car uh, trains whiz by, which is pretty depressing, as you know, if you've ever done that. Uh, the high-speed rail, any any suburban high-speed well, rail would have to work by by being expressed, right? I mean, what... I mean, it just take. I think the government's now talking about the high-speed rail again, aren't they? They are between Sydney and yeah. Melbourne. Yeah. Yeah, but see, the thing is that these take. Via um, Canberra, by the way. 
Yeah, uh, via Canberra. Mm, that's what they're talking about. Yeah, mm, yeah. yeah. I think that was uh, originally proposed as well when I uh, yeah, worked was. on it. You remember, yeah, Kevin? Yeah, yeah. yeah uh, it they, was. Uh, but, the, but the trouble is that these uh, trains take about seven kilometres to to a slow down, right? Because mm. if they if they slow down any any faster, people's um, Chardonnay will will spill over their uh, glasses, right? <laughs> you can't have that. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. A worry. And the same in this limit. <laughs> you have uh, raised a serious problem here, Patrick. Oh, indeed, I have. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And this limits also their um, radius of uh, of curvature, uh, both uh, horizontal and and, and uh, vertical, right? So passenger comfort and and as I say, there a Chardonnay. So if it takes them seven kilometres to slow down, seven kilometres to speed up, you can see that they can't stop very often. So it's not an access. It doesn't provide access for ordinary punters. It's just for those travelling long in distances. It's also the problem, and I think. Uh, plane travel has a lot of problems but what happened in 1990 when they first proposed this they said look we, we have a new uh, a new co- uh, competition for the air air service it's going to cost more but on the other hand it will be slower now there that's a great selling point right? <laughs> mm. because air travel because it travels in the air it gets its its infrastructure for free it only has to have it have it at the ends yeah mm. uh, okay. it's partly the problem that melbourne and sydney are a little bit too far apart in other words, um, there's always a problem accessing uh, airports, but because it's 727 kilometres airline, that's a good distance, isn't it, between Melbourne and Sydney, mm. uh, air travel can always make up that time uh, in, in, that, uh, in the uh, trunk hall, right? Mm-hmm. So if, if say, um, if, if Sydney had, had have been at Canberra or maybe a bit closer, it might have been viable. Mm, for sure. But, but then again, if, I, if I'm in a European city like, uh, say, Rome or somewhere, and I wander down to the station and want to go to Naples or Venice or whatever, I can look up and I'm likely to see a train going in about 20 minutes. And over there, people seem to use trains much more than planes to go between those cities. Well, what's the difference? Well, the cities are much closer together. I mean, if you take Luxembourg, which is uh, which would fit into a corner of Melbourne, um, there's not much uh, international... Uh, or national plane travel there, right? And it's the same with with Holland, for instance. There's no internal plane travel, and in um, in France, I, I think the government actually sets the prices for air and or they used to for air and rail travel, and the VFT came out cheaper, and uh, and they made it that way. But it's partly the fact that, as I said, the cities are close together. Once you get say um, cities closer than say 400 kilometres, then uh, because of the time it takes to get through and now to clear airport customs and so, or uh, airport security and so on, uh, trains have the edge there in in uh, in the travel time. So, do you think it'd be better to improve and upgrade the existing slow train, for want of a better word, track between Sydney and Melbourne, and improve that, and uh, put more emphasis on improving that? And then, for example, if you want to travel between Sydney and Melbourne, you can do an overnight train, get a cabin, have a sleep, wake up, have a kind of a slow travel movement, and change our at- attitudes towards travel. Yeah, well, I mean, I've I, I, I've travelled several times on the sleeper uh, going to to uh, to uh, Sydney. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's expensive, of course, having mm, sleepers. Uh, the, the Victorian alignment is pretty good, but uh, the New South Wales alignment could be improved a lot, and maybe mm. that's. Uh, Maybe that's where they where they should put their efforts in. Yeah. But I imagine high speed rail would be expensive too, just to start paying off some of the huge debt that would that it would create. Yeah, yeah, and um, mm. and they're also pretty energy intensive. You've got to have a, basically you have to have a power station. Uh, you know, I think they have about five megawatt engines, which are pretty large, really. Um, yeah, exactly. Mainly, the, uh, it's mainly uh, air friction is the problem at that speed. Mm, like um, mm. 350 kilometres an hour and so on. 
On, on that point about uh, cost of engines, etc., um, I know you've been looking at electric cars as well, and uh, Tesla, the, um, the the biggest electric car company of them all, um, it's co- it's currently talking about bringing out or is going to bring out a new model in, a, in next year sometime, uh, which is more affordable than the the one they've been having. Uh, and there's been lots of people queuing up to buy it. Um, are there advances there that uh, that are positive? Yeah, well, I mean, obviously it helps in air pollution. Uh, I think one of the problems in America is the price of, 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 of uh, petrol or, or gasoline, as they call it there. Because American gasoline doesn't attract <clears throat> much uh, in the way of taxes, as does, um, you know, even Australian, but especially Euro- European uh, transport, um, the, the price of petrol... Ca- can vary a lot and when the international price drops then the petrol price drops a lot and I think that's put a damper on alternative um, fuels and uh, power systems mm. for travel in the US. In fact, there was an article in, the, in one of the American papers recently saying just that, that because the price of petrol's dropped, uh, people are now getting back into buying the um, the big SUVs etc because they're cheaper to run. Yeah, well, well uh, well, I, I, I think here as well, there seems to be a move that way. Just, I mean, I haven't had a look at the figures recently, but just looking on the roads, that's what I tend to see. Yeah, mm, maybe just depressing. my my area. Yeah. But mm-hmm. there's always been problems with electric cars in terms of the, you know, the, how far they can go without having to be recharged, etc. Are these still problems that need to be overcome for them to become? And I, mean, well, I guess well, the price. Well, I mean, the price. I suppose if more people buy them, the price will drop, but the price is pretty exorbitant at the moment. Yeah. Well, one of the one of the uh, sort of social advantages that they had was to have a hybrid. Um, we, in other words, provide a small petrol engine uh, as a fallback um, to to the electric system. So they, they um, these plug-in electric hybrids um, have a battery. In other words, the average person travels less than about, or the average car travels less than about thirty or forty kilometres a day. And so um, all you need then is a battery that has that range if you charge daily. Um, and if you want to go further distances, either you, well, I suppose if you have a second vehicle in the household or you, you can have a, a, um, a, 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 a petrol engine which then extends your range, mm. you know, maybe 100 mm. kilometres or more uh, in the petrol engine. Yeah. Mm. Uh, because of the high density of, um, of uh, petroleum fuels compared with... Um, with with batteries, whether you work it out as energy per litre or energy per, per weight, they're much, much higher. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, and of course, one of the problems there again is that unless you're using renewable energy to recharge it all the time, in a sense, you're still creating uh, environmental problems. Yeah, all, all that benefits is uh, energy uh, security, especially oil security. Only about... <clears throat> Only about uh, three or four percent of the world's electricity today is is generated from electricity, down from about thirty uh, percent or more um, at the time of the first oil crisis in the late seventies. Mm-hmm. So you mean from fossil change. fuels? Hmm? Did you mean the electricity generated from fossil fuels? Yeah. Yeah. No, yeah. What I'm saying is, um, no, that's. Uh, I think that's all electricity. It, it used to be over thirty percent mm. of all electricity. Now it's. Um, generated from petro- from oil now it's a three or four percent so assuming you're not using renewable energy what would be greener would it be to have an electric powered car driven by victorian brown coal no or... <laughs> <laughs> so you're still better off with a no. petrol engine yeah yeah, yeah. natural gas there may be um more it also depends upon what range you want i mean if you if you do if you had a 
a pure battery-driven electric vehicle and you wanted the same range to match the range that a, uh, uh, that a petrol tank provides, mm. um, then, of course, you have to carry around an enormous load of, of, of uh, batteries. Yes. And basically, you, you, you're getting into a... You, you can get into a no-wind spiral where you're... Uh, carrying around more, more more batteries so that you can carry around more batteries, right? <laughs> yeah, right. So, uh, but if you have a small range, then um, so it depends upon the range, uh, which which one's better, as well as the uh, as the um, electricity fuel system. They said um, they used to say it was greener in Tasmania to drive an electric car because electricity would probably come from the hydroelectric schemes. But of course, now the the lakes are so low there now that they're struggling to have enough energy just for their everyday needs. So. Well, look, no, it's. I think this is this is suboptimization. It's yeah. the same with Norway. Um, Norway generates 100 percent of its electricity from from hydro. Yeah. Right? And in fact, electric vehicles are, are are very very popular there because they haven't got it. Well, in fact, Norway does have uh, uh, petroleum in the um, North Sea. But the point is that. Norway is part of a larger grid. Mm. If they use if they use electricity more electricity for electric vehicles, it means that they can't export as much. Yes. So therefore, Germany, which used to import it, is going to have to burn more more coal. Right? Yes. You have to take a global viewpoint of this. You do, yeah. In Australia, um, and because uh, Tas Hydro is connected to the mainland now, in fact. Uh, the, the force well, indeed, there. indeed, it's not at the moment. It's uh, <laughs> the the cable is broken. Yeah, that's yeah. Right. Yeah. But I'm saying for global problems, you have to think um, what we call um, uh, um, Earth system science, mm. uh, especially for global warming. I mean, if you're talking about air pollution, then Melbourne, uh, the solutions to Melbourne air pollution lie in Melbourne alone, right? Yes. Uh, because there's very little come come from other airsheds. Yep. Mm. Yeah. That's not the case with... Um, there's also an argument, of course, Paddy, that that... Uh, that cable that has broken, linking Tasmania and Victoria, might, it, might we might pray that it, if we're going to pray at all, that it stays broken because it actually uses Victorian brown coal uh, power to feed Tasmania. So um, we're probably saving a fair bit in the environment at the moment. Well, uh, probably. Uh, I, I'm not certain, but I think... Um, so the point is that hydro, being a non-thermal source, can be switched on and off very fast, right? And it was, it's a bit wasted uh, in that sense... Um, it's probably more better for the environment that, that it is used as a premium fuel over here in the um, on the mainland, right? Um, I think you'd probably find that uh, this uh, the, a broken um, cable is not helping the environment much. No, well, I see. It was, well, of course, it's run by a private company, which again shows the super efficiency of the private sector. But <laughs> we won't go into that. <laughs> Um, I have a question. What do you think of the Chinese um, proposal for a global energy grid to link all of the um, electricity grids? I, I, I've uh, looked at this, yeah. Um, well, there's two ways you could do it. Um, one, of course, is to have... You've heard of this solar satellite power? That's being revived again, and in fact, you know... No, what's uh, that? Oh, um, well, you have, uh, uh, you, you have um, satellites which have got... Um, Huge areas of, of um, photovoltaic cells, uh, which uh, because there's no atmosphere and so on, they can they can receive uh, direct sunlight 24 hours a day if they're suitably positioned, and they would then beam this down to Earth in microwave uh, form, where where it would be picked up by microwave receivers, and hopefully the, the aim would be uh, good because you wouldn't want to fry. <laughs> anyone nearby or anything so um and that's one proposal the other proposal of course is is to have um 
the world connected by a, a grid. Um, so the, the advantage of having, say, um, solar cell farms in northern hemisphere, the southern hemisphere and the east and the west, as it were, is that you can have have a 24-hour generation of electricity. But, of course, the cost of the cables would be... I've seen figures, and it's in the trillions. It would be... Mm. I don't think it's going to happen. And, of course, there's the energy security problem again. Mm. It turns out that most people like to get electricity locally. Um, only about 2 or 3% of electricity crosses international boundaries. Mm. And most of that is, for instance, you know, on the Canadian-American border, Canada, if, if they have a power station nearby, it'll, it'll, it'll supply local American... Uh, communities on the other side of the border and and of it vice versa. Um, but having most of your electricity coming from a few thousand kilometres away, I don't think people would wear that. I, I, I don't think it's a very good idea either. Mm. Uh, all they have to do is turn off the switch. I mean, the, yeah. the, the political implications are pretty enormous. Yeah. Mm. Uh, oil, for instance, 60% crosses international boundaries, but you, but you can store oil to some extent. In fact, you know, they, they have this uh, a, a strategic reserve that the uh, OECD has and so on. Mm. Yeah, Paddy, in about the one minute we've got left, um, I know you live in the area. They Again, the Murdoch media is beating up madly this so-called, they're calling Skyrail, which in fact is, of course, just level crossings where the, the, the train goes over. Uh, any thoughts about the way they're beating that one up? Yeah, look, uh, I mean, I my focus now is more on global problems, but... As I say, uh, I think the, the argument isn't whether you should put it underground or above. I mean, we have examples of both in Melbourne. Um, it's really about what, how come there was no conversation about alternatives, in other words, about about traffic management and saying, mm. look, we, there's enough vehicular travel now, how yeah. can we re-reduce re- it? And that argument was never... Uh, never raised. Uh, no, no. Yeah. The only thing, that, so the Herald Sun raises the fact that they're going to raise the train or something. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, all right. Look, we're out of time, Patty. But look, thanks for that. Um, okay. You've yep. come on. I must. I've told you on the phone, but you've come on today by what passes on city limits as popular request. Oh. So there you are. Uh, <laughs> it's been great chatting to you. Thank you. Okay. Thanks, Mark. Thanks. Okay. Great. Bye. Thanks a lot. Bye. Thanks a lot, Patrick Moriarty, um, Professor Moriarty these days, and he, of course, is at Monash in the engineering department, and um, he, as you obviously from the interview, he he researches in these sort of areas. Hmm. All right, so that's the end of the show today. Um, uh, housing next week. Housing next week, and excellent. And we're hoping Emma was Emma's back next week and she's talking about getting someone from that Collingwood squat which is in those houses down oh, there. Oh, fantastic. East West, and plus we'll have the usual um, representative from the Housing with the Aged Action Group and discuss mm. all sorts of issues. Fantastic. Great. And so, listen, Corey, by the way, just thanks for putting that stuff together, Jack Mundy and all that, because it was mm. for a bit oh, of work. Okay. But it's, yeah, okay. So you're listening to City Limits, the time's 9.59, this is 3CR, 8.55am, 3cr.org.au. We're going to go out with Women's Business by Ruby Hunter. Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia, on the Kulin Nation. For more information and to find out how you can support 3CR, go to www.3cr.org.au. Dot au